Everybody wants their lives to turn out happy. We want security. We want fulfillment. We want to stop being so alone. Most of all, of course, we want love. Everybody needs love. But when you were abused or emotionally neglected as a kid, you might find that one relationship after another after another just keeps coming up empty. It's no good. It's not real. They're not into you. It's not what you thought. You get hurt. You even get humiliated. You get flat out rejected. And it happens enough times that it's almost impossible to face. And at that point, you kind of know that something is driving partners away from you. But the need for love is so great that you just push ahead and hope once again, this time it'll be different. And it's that urgent need for love that becomes the actual obstacle for healing. But what is healing? What are people even talking about? You do the same things they do and they, they heal and, and you just keep making the same mistakes. Here's the thing about serious childhood trauma. If you were consistently treated as worthless, as an object, you weren't seen or heard, nobody got you, the solutions devised by people who see your symptoms but who don't have what you have, their solutions are just not that likely to help. What's needed is a journey into what I call the deep room. The deep room inside where you can see the real issue at last and open up to changing for real. And I'll say more about that after I read the letter I received this week from a woman that I'll call Vivian. It's a long letter. I'm including virtually all of it because the first half, it's more than I usually include about somebody's past. But in this case, what happened to her when she was a kid is telling and it's mysterious, especially in light of her strengths right now and the way she's currently struggling in a relationship. So here's a letter from Vivian. Dear Anna, until right now, I had myself convinced that I was doing a lot better with limerence and my related issues, which I have found tremendous help with by watching your videos. Great. I broke up with a boyfriend recently who was not right for me. I was waiting for the inevitable abandonment melange. Imagine my shock and joy when it didn't come. Abandonment melange, for people who are new on this channel, it's a, it's a very intense set of emotions that happened to to some of us who were who went through actual abandonment when we were kids. The grief, rage, panic, feels like you got kicked out of the whole world and the human race. And it's so terrible that sometimes we'll go to any lengths to avoid it, like stick around with somebody that's not right for us. So, so Vivian's saying here, she thought she was gonna get abandonment melange as she has in the past, but she didn't. And she credits learning about CPTSD and abandonment melange and attachment disorders, dissociation and limerence from the crappy childhood fairy channel. And that's given her a context, she says, for what I've always experienced with breakups. So when I decided he was a very bad choice for me, um, a first for me to decide that, and when I ended it, I was bracing for the inevitable feelings of total collapse and waiting for my entire personhood to shatter. Only this time it didn't happen. Okay. I've got my fairy pencil. I'm going to circle things that I want to come back to on a second reading, but let's just go through Vivian's letter here. See what's going on. Okay. <clears throat> 
So it didn't happen. Can you imagine that? I felt free and happy and self-possessed. I felt strong. Yeah, that's what it feels like when you leave a bad relationship and you don't have <laughs> abandonment wounds. So what brings me now to the place where I sadly feel I should write to ask for help is because I'm experiencing limerence for someone and I don't know why I can't shake it. I feel stupid. Okay, I understand. I'm 49 and a successful artist. I say that because work is the only thing I've ever been good at. I come from a broken home, broken by my extremely malignant narcissistic mom, who spent my childhood putting herself first and making sure I knew she despised me. My mom is a tiny lady with black eyes and black hair. She hates how she looks and told me she married my father so she could have a tall child with a perfect nose and blue eyes. I'm tall with a good nose and blue eyes. However, this made her seethe with jealousy over the attention and compliments I got. Also, because I am a separate person, any attempt to be a real person with my own wishes, opinions, desires, dreams, or preferences was met with anger, insults, brutal punishment, and worst of all, emotional starvation. I was conceived against my father's wishes by my mom who tried to make him be more responsible. When this didn't work, she kicked him out, divorced him, and then remarried another tall, blue-eyed man with a perfect nose. <laughs> Sorry, it's not really funny, but it's just, you know, the perfect nose thing. This is the first time we've had a perfect nose be a part of a story. Okay. Only unlike my father, this next man was psychologically unhinged, brutal, and violent. In a way you could never see coming, he began hitting me when I was four. I told my mom he hit me before they got married while they were still dating, and she told me flatly, no, they didn't. So <clears throat> it's going to get a little bit rougher here if you want to plug your ears. So eventually he began hitting me in front of her, giving me nosebleeds at age five, and she just stood there emotionless. After he began cheating on her openly in our community, she began picking fights with me, so he would rush in and hit me to put me in my place, saying this was discipline, quote. A few times she walked away with him, thanking him for defending her. I suspect this was for her to prove to herself that he still cared about her. Two quick memories for some greater context. My mom's husband was an emergency room doctor. My best friend, who I walked to and from school with every day, lived across the street. One day, her parents were involved in a car accident and were taken to the ER, the emergency room. Her parents told this stepfather that I was a wonderful and polite child who was having a very positive effect on their daughter. And the stepdad looked at them dead in the eyes and said, I have no idea what you're talking about. And they explained again that they were Lisa's parents who lived across the street and that I was a wonderful child and they were thankful I was having a positive effect on Lisa. Again, he told them he had no idea what they were talking about. He didn't have any stepchildren and had no idea who they were even though they had met him before. Imagine what it was like to have them pull me aside privately to tell me this happened. I was eight years old. I had no framework to even process it. What was worse, when I got home after that conversation, my mom told me I was punished yet again because of it. I asked my mom to explain why I was grounded for two weeks, unable to leave the house, use the phone or TV or see any friends, because someone told her husband that I was a wonderful child. She just stared at me and never answered. Uh-huh. Okay. I have some thoughts about that. The second memory explains why I am no contact with her now. After years of therapy and working with her to get her to finally admit I had been abused as a child, which she was able to do after denying it for over a decade, 
We were walking down the street one day during a Christmas visit talking about old times, including her husband, and I tried to emotionally connect with her about it and be vulnerable. Uh-oh. Where's this gonna go? I said, I always wanted a brother or sister, so at least I wouldn't have to be abused alone. I guess I hit a nerve because she replied with, your stepfather took one look at you and refused to have children with me. <laughs> I was visibly shaken and said, what did you just say to me? And she contorted her face into a mocking expression and said, oh, get over it, it was just a joke. I walked back to her home, packed my bags and flew home and have never seen her again. My present situation is that I do now have the ability to see bad relationships and break up with someone, something I wasn't able to do before. Again, I credit your videos with all of the information I now have that helps me see things for what they are, including my own problems and issues to work on. However, there's a young man that I can't stop thinking about. I know this is limerence, but why doesn't knowing that make it stop? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Why doesn't my healing and strength prevent me from falling into this trap? He's 31. We'll call him B. And I'm 49, but I look 38, according to everyone I meet, and I agree with them because I know it's true. So one day, I saw him on Facebook. He's an architect who gels with what I do, and she's an artist. He, he's very professional and looks older than his age. I thought he was about 36 to 40. He's got a light when he smiles, and even in photos, he commands a room. I heard a voice in my mind say, wow, I could really fall in love with this guy. Total limerence, just based on Facebook photos and posts. But let me tell you, when he messaged me on Facebook and showed some interest in me, I was all over it. I made plans to be in his town and we met up. We drank, talked, flirted, and he asked me back to his house and I happily said yes. We had a spectacular kissing session in the bar and went back and then went back to his place. I held the line and didn't go all the way with him, but we fooled around and it was great. We don't live in the same town. Also, he let me know his wife had left him, confirmed, was divorcing him, and he was in a self-destructive phase of dating tons of women and drowning in his sorrows. I thanked him for his honesty and he thanked me for being so thoughtful about everything as I accepted his situation. Then the next day, he called me with a plan for us to become colleagues and work on a big project together, which I accepted. That was about a year ago. In the meantime, from that phone call until now, I had the recent boyfriend, who I even brought along with me when I saw B again for the first time after our one night out. By the time the big project with B rolled around, I had broken up with my boyfriend, so I showed up to his hometown where the project was taking place single. Even though nothing happened with B, we were texting a lot, built up more of a rapport, built some private jokes, found out we have tons in common, and became friends. His grandma even gave me preserves and food she prepared in a little gift bag she gave to him to give to me. And to her amazement, I made her some food right back, and B and I went to her home so I could give it to her. She loved me and told me over and over how wonderful I am. So beautiful and thoughtful. Sigh. After the project was over, we continued to stay in touch, and he said he wanted to do more projects and we should team up to really do as many projects as possible. I made him my advisor for one grant. He wrote letters of recommendations for me, and he uses my CV, for my resume for his projects as his colleague. 
So here I am, working with this man I thought I could resist, but all the initial feelings are still there, only stronger since we have the creative connection, the jokes, the projects to work on, and I'm in the pocket with his nana, the person in his family who he's closest with. Please help me stop obsessing over him. You know I'm going to do it, too, but you're not going to like it. <laughs> I, live, I live for our interactions. I love our project ideas. I fantasize about him falling in love with me, wanting to be with me, and me the same with him, of us being a cool power couple with a great life, doing cool projects, and just loving life. Reality. He's too young for me. I'm too old for him. And he's in a different place in life and not in a good place emotionally himself. There's never going to be anything with him. So why am I experiencing limerence for him? Can you help? Why can't I just make it stop? Thank you for any insight you can give me. And thank you for all the work you do. All right. From Vivian. Thank you. All right. I got you here. Um, what a bummer, Vivian. You know, I know like having that creative spark with somebody is one of life's most precious connections there is. And I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Like it's so tempting to want to make that into your romantic relationship. And you're a woman. This is a man. And if a man is being offered free sex, then even if he's not interested in you at all, a lot of times for many men, they will just arrange for that. I just am so glad he told you the real deal with him that he's on a self-destructive bender sleeping with lots and lots of women. That must feel terrible for you, being in love with him as you are. So, but good. All the, all the more this like gets you in the face, ah, this sucks. That's better. That's better for you. All right. You said you recently broke up with a guy who was not right for you and you don't talk about him, but you had to break up with him. Like at least he was into you and I can't help but wonder, I don't know, maybe he wasn't right for you. You're not that, you're, you're still, I, I, the stuff you told me about your childhood is so egregious, but I can see ways that it's still totally infecting who you are, how you interpret things and what you do. It's still there. So I don't know what kind of good relationship you would happen to stumble into in this case, but you didn't feel like this was right for you. Um, and you, but I'll tell you why I question the whole thing. You broke up with this guy when you got limerent about somebody impossible for you. Somebody who was on a self-destructive bender, drinking, sleeping with lots of women, way too young for you. Then you broke up with this guy that you were already with, who I guess was still willing to be with you. So I'm just, I'm questioning that. Okay. So you thought you would get abandonment melange and it didn't happen. Well, yeah. Uh, one way that you can avoid abandonment melange is by basically self-medicating on an, on an addictive uh, delusion about another person, which is what you had gone into. That's what limerence is for. The reason you haven't been able to kick limerence yet is because your life is not fun. It's not happy. There's not meaning in there. You're not meeting your own emotional needs. You're not, uh, you're not having the full spectrum of what you need in your life to be happy. And because of the way you were raised, probably, mm, you know, you just never learned how to do that. You got, you got much better at trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, you know, than actually building up a life that you love. You got better at like pretending this half-life you've got is like, oh, it's so great. It's going to be great. And having this total relationship where all your energy goes into a fantasy. What's tragic about that is, um, you know, you put your energy in a fantasy and you basically threw it in the incinerator. Your precious energy for building a life, for creating great things in the world, for loving people, for solving the world's problems, whatever it is that you're made to do, you just threw that away. You just, it's like you took a big thing of milk and poured it on the floor. 
You told me about your mom, and you said that she was an extremely malignant narcissist mom. And I can tell you've been in therapy because you have a lot of insight about that. And like, I, I'm not a diagnostician, but the stuff you told me is appalling, terrible. Wow, uh, just terrible. And all her stuff about having children who look a certain way, my mom did that. <laughs> I won't go into it right now, but she, you know, she had an agenda for how her kids should look. It, luckily, it didn't last that long, but it was after I was born and she felt like I just didn't come out blonde enough. I came out a bit dark. And, you know, my mom's Norwegian and uh, my coloring was basically like you see now. It's I color my hair now, but this is about, I think my hair was a little lighter than this as a kid and that was not enough. And also my eyes aren't blue. She wanted blue eyes. Weird, huh? I tell you what though, I didn't find out about that until I had a lot of healing under my belt. So I, all I do is just go, well, that's so weird. I don't take it personally. Um, I like the color of my hair and eyes is just not something I've ever felt insecure about. So mm. a lot of things I have felt insecure about, but not that. So when you don't have personally carry a fear about something or the shape of your nose, when I was a kid, actually, I read, I think, is it in Little Women? One of the sisters sleeps with a clothespin. And I did that. I, it hadn't occurred to me that people should want a thin nose, but when I read it in Little Women, I was like, should you? Okay, I'll sleep with a clothespin, but it hurts. It hurts. And so that lasted for about, you know, 45 minutes. <laughs> Cut over it. And uh, I think once when I was a comedian, uh, an agent said that I should get a nose job and get my teeth fixed. And I couldn't afford it. And then I forgot all about it. So there you go. <laughs> Don't worry about that. So when I read about your mom, like shaming you again and again, and, you know, like basically trying to breed a child with somebody and, and then they didn't like how you turned out. And then she tried to, she got, she got pregnant against his will in order to get him more responsible. Like, did she say that? That's like, wow. I mean, at least sometimes if she admitted it and explained herself this way, at least you have the information instead of having to speculate. Maybe she just did that because, you know, she just wanted to get him to stay with her. But everything that you're describing does sound like somebody who has no conscience at all about affecting other people and is just trying to what's the word, you know, create an image for themselves and then, you know, like destroy people as needed to keep the image going. So then she got this new guy with the nice nose. <laughs> Sorry, I can't stop laughing about the nice nose. What even is a nice nose? I don't know. But, uh, and he was violent and unhinged and brutal. And your mom pretended she didn't see it and said, oh, thank you for defending me. And for whatever reason, I understand, I can see that. I can see that of getting, you know, like having to be defended from a nine-year-old girl by somebody hitting her. That's just really just violates everything in me. I just hate it. I hate that that happened to you. And uh, I blame you for nothing that you've struggled with after something like that. So then the ER doctor thing, okay, this is interesting for what it's worth. Like this, this has, I take it her, that abusive husband is dead or not in the picture anymore, but why would he do that in the hospital and say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know what my guess is, is somebody else was present and he had a secret life where he was lying that he had a wife. That's, that's like one thing that would completely explain it. You know, that some other person was present in the room when they had that conversation. He's like, Oh, I don't have a wife. I don't have a kid. Just thinking, I don't know. We'll let the uh, commenters have a field day with that one. And, um, you, I, I also get it that, you know, he couldn't tolerate people praising you. That sounds like it really was the case, but for him to deny even knowing what they were talking about and say he didn't have stepkids, 
I feel like he was hiding something from someone else in the room. He was having an affair. If it's any satisfaction to you. Okay. So then you got home. And so let's just do my scenario that there was somebody else in the room he was having an affair with who was under the false impression that he was a single guy and he had to pretend he had no idea what these people were talking about. It was blowing his cover. What would he have had to tell your mom, right? What would he have had to tell her to get away with it? Because the neighbors would probably go to her and go, well, it was the weirdest thing. We saw Bob at the emergency room and he, he said he had no idea what we were talking about. And <laughs> he would have had to make something up, right? Yeah, you were punished for something he made up about you. And it sounds like that happened a lot, but that's what I'm guessing. He was just treating both of you just look terribly, right? So you got grounded. And also because your mom is trying to, she's, she's having to work really hard to be in denial about what's really going on, about how this man is abusing you and probably her to get in denial. And because she's just so bonkers here, of course she has to blame you. You're grounded. You know, this whole thing is going on of abuse and lies and you're grounded. That just, that makes, for everything you've told me about her, she always has to have some sort of like outlet to take all that anger out on, right? Because if she gets mad at him, I hate to think what he would do to her. I don't mean to just dismiss that. It's terrible. I'm so sorry that happened to you. Okay, so then this other thing happened. This is why you have no contact with her. You had years of therapy. You worked with her to finally admit you had been abused. And you're like, wow, she admitted it. Your mind thinks now everything's going to be okay. You took a walk and you start trying to emotionally connect with her and be vulnerable. But if she's as narcissistic as you describe, of course, that's a terrible mistake, right? You should never try to emotionally connect or be vulnerable with somebody who treats you like that. Admitting abuse is not like suddenly not being the person that she was, but you gave it a try. I'm proud of you for giving it a try. You tried, you gave it a chance and you said, I always wanted a brother or sister, so at least I wouldn't have been abused alone. So I could see how you totally had this fantasy that finally the two of you could debrief about what had been going on. Like, wouldn't have that have been nice if she could have explained to you what it all meant and why, what she was thinking and tell you how sorry she was, but I don't think you got that. And you hit a nerve and she said, he took one look at you and refused to have children with me. Back to her whole thing, her looksism, right? She's got this idea like people should look a certain way or they've let her down and she hit you with that. Took one look at you. Is that what it was about? That you just like look terrible or you behave terrible? Or her, her imagining that he didn't want children with a woman who had black hair and black eyes? Like, what is her crazy trip here? Who even knows? That's the thing. When I'm outside this, this dynamic with your malignant narcissist mom, it's just like her, her stuff doesn't make sense. It's just so like selfish and cruel that for you to take it personally, it's almost impossible not to do when it's your mother. But I'm sure me and everybody in your life is just like, oh girl, forget this one. You were visibly shaken and said, what'd you say? And she said, oh, get over it. It's just a joke. Okay, that's the classic narcissist excuse, right? For saying something totally devastating, like that you have no sense of humor. It's just a joke. Okay, so you never saw her again. Okay, so we got her out of the picture. Now you start telling me about what's going on now. So I think... Um, do you know what Pollyanna-ish is? Pollyanna is a character, fictional character, and she just like sees the good in everything. And it's a really positive coping mechanism for us and can be used for great good. I, I you know, I feel like I'm still a little Pollyanna-ish, but I think you're being Pollyanna-ish in, in not such a good way because you say here, 
I now have the ability to see bad relationships and break up with someone, something I wasn't able to do before. So you, maybe, you broke up with somebody you weren't into anymore, but you haven't broken up with a, bad, a situation that's quite bad and completely robbing you of all your emotional and psychic energy. So I'm just sort of calling you on that. And it's like, now I don't think you have that yet, but at least the framework is around you. You're sort of like looking at it and asking yourself, are my actions now fitting this thing where I get realistic? and that getting out of bad relationships is a good thing. You're there, so that's good. And you know you have issues to work on. Okay, so there's a young man you can't stop thinking about. You know it's limerence. I love your self-awareness. You keep telling me this stuff, but on one side of your mouth, you're saying, I know this is bad. I know it's not good, you know, it's, it's limerence. And over here, you're like, but it's so amazing. It's like, it's not both, actually. It can't be both. It's, it's just that you're limerent and you're trying to, your part of you is developed enough to start criticizing your limerence. And, and uh, I believe you. Some, sometimes when people are in like a limerent state, they are just trying to like BS everybody. They say what they know you're supposed to say. So I hope you're not doing that. I don't think you are. I think you're actually like kind of partway healed and you, you see the way, but you, you're now like, now that you're limerent again, it's like, ugh, can't do it, can't apply it. So, so this will be a tough love rest of the letter where I talk to you about, about what, what's happening and what to do. All right. He's 31, you're 49. Um, and you say, but I look 38, according to everyone I meet. When you said that, it sounded like your mom talking. Subsequently, everything you told me about him, it's not just the age. It's like he has zero emotional maturity and commitment ability to bring to a relationship with you at your 49-year-old stage of life. So he has zero. It does not matter that you look 38. That doesn't fill the gap. It's looksism. You know what I mean? And um, I, I thought about that a lot. I, and I thought, well, maybe she's just trying to tell me, trying to explain why a guy who's 31 would like somebody who's 49, that maybe maybe there was merit in his feelings, why he would like us. He looks, and you said, he looks older than he is. He looks 36 to 40 and you look 38. So you're trying to say there's an overlap in the way you look and people tell you all the time, but that is your, I just, it just sounds like your mom. It just sounds like your mom. It's not about what you look like. It's about where you are in your life. And so it was interesting that you brought that up. And I've seen that before. I'm just going to say that, you know, I get a lot of letters. I read a lot of them. I don't always um, read them on a, answer them on a YouTube. I, I probably read 10 for every one that I accept. And I'll just tell you, I've noticed a pattern when there's been like a narcissistic mom who calls all this attention, very judgmental and critical of the daughter about looks, weight, food, body, in your case, nose, eyes, hair, right? Or was it just me who has the hair? I don't know. But when that's happening, there's a tendency to then get very caught up in it. And there's often a, an attraction to, um, uh, to somebody much younger. It's not often, but I've, I've just seen this pattern before. The mother who's very looksist, and then the daughter who, who's, uh, I don't know, having a limerent thing for somebody much younger, and then saying, oh, but you see the, you know, they, I look so young, so it's okay. And I'm, what I'm sort of reading between the lines there, and this, this would be sort of a fear any, anybody might have if they were falling for somebody much younger, is like, fear I'm getting older, fear I don't look good enough to be desired, right? That's so deep. That's just so deep in our consciousness. But it has no place in a healthy relationship. Like, we have to be who we are and where we are. And then we make the most of that. It's great to like, you know, dress beautifully, to be attractive, to, you know, show your lovely side of yourself. That's all good. But to try to say, 
well, I'm actually this thing, but I don't look like I'm this terrible thing of 49. So I'm 59. To me, 49 is young. <laughs> but 31, a 31-year-old man is really young, and it would be very, very rare that a relationship with that age difference would work out. It has before. We know a couple of like, you know, the French president or, <laughs> but it, it's, it's going to tend not to work out. These are very diff different things. And so one of the things that I'm going to just put in front of you right now is there's a part of you that cannot deal with a fully available man. And uh, perhaps a part of you that's, you know, doesn't feel very complete about a younger phase in your life, you know, and want, feels like you got to revisit that because this current phase is not very good. Um, that could be it. I don't want to psychologize it too much. But I will say with pretty much certainty that you're not able to show up for a truly available person if all your emotional energy is pouring into somebody who not only is too young, but is flat out said, you know, just all this stuff. All right. But again, I will come back to the part that I hear that does work, which is the creative collaboration, which is not chopped liver. All right. So you saw him on Facebook, very professional, looks older. And then he reached out to you and his smile is so great. So he's, he's a dazzling, charismatic person and you fell for him and you made plans to be in his town, which is, yeah, okay. It's, it's a level of, it's a level of planning that's acceptable if you're interested in somebody. It's just that, yeah, this is because we know what was really going on with him. It stands out as like you really trying to work your way into something that wasn't a good place for you. Um, we drank, talked, and flirted. Okay, so I'm just going to say, if you have attachment wounds from being raised the way you were, I'm going to suggest to you that you don't drink. Don't drink at all, or at least don't drink in the first months of dating a man. It's not your friend. It's going to lower your inhibitions. It's going to um, make it really hard for you to do the very nuanced work of paying attention to the signals you're getting, of staying in reality, of not crap fitting to whatever it is that's being asked of you, of not ignoring the difficult details and just jumping right in. Alcohol is not your friend. Anything intoxicating is not your friend. And that kind of stuff can be a fun part of life for people who don't have a problem for it. But for you, after you're already in a relationship, perhaps. And even then, I would just say, maybe not. Okay. So if you're with somebody who's on a bender, on a destructive drinking phase with dating tons of women and drowning his sorrows, and you drink with him, you've just jumped in the shark tank. You're, here you are, a wounded person who was raised by somebody who was totally selfish, right? And you just jumped in with somebody who is totally selfish, all right? So you held, you, you said we had this great kissing session in a bar. So that's pretty radical. Like a guy you've just met and you have a kissing session in a bar and then go back to his house. I'm just going to put in front of you the word boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. Um, you might feel like this was validation for you if you felt like, oh my gosh, a young man is interested in me. And yeah, there's that validation, but there's no boundaries here. And that's what happens when kids are raised by narcissists. They just have no idea how you don't get to have boundaries. And so you're operating here. What's what it's showing me is this is a phase of your healing that you're not there yet. Like you intellectually see that you don't want to be in something right for you. If you want to not be in something right for you, you cannot drink and make out in the bar with some, with a guy you just met. Right? I mean, just think this through. All right. If you're going to heal from trauma and attachment wounds, and getting involved sexually with somebody is going to just like hijack your brain. You're going to have to guard that tendency of yours very carefully. Much of it is a natural tendency to fall in love, you know, to feel sexual, to, 
you know, sort of get carried away in a new relationship. That's pretty normal, right? But the part that's trauma is just having this giant blind spot to the way this guy is just screaming with red flags. And this drowning of sorrows and dating self-destructive phase, by the way, I would not say is a good person to be in business with either. And, um, and I've had, I've been in business now for, I don't know, 22 years or something. And, uh, I know all about like (laughs) relying on people who can't be relied upon and thinking back about the red flags that I saw all along and learning my lessons again about the boundaries that I have to have with that. So you thanked him for his honesty, but then he called you the next day and said, why don't we be friends? And you know, if you've watched my videos, you know how, you know how I am about that, the F word. friends. We'll just be friends and you'll be in love with me and I'll be your friend and it'll be great for me. (laughs) Right? (laughs) It is great for them. They can feed off all that energy for a guy drowning his sorrows just to have his go-to gal all the time. That's perfect. And then he can just go sleep with whoever. I'm mad at him, but there's no use being mad at him. All that matters is that you wake up. You just need to wake up. Here's the cruel thing about limerence. Limerence will often awaken in you, your creative eyes. You will see things with a beauty and a depth that you haven't ever seen before. And that's part of how falling in love works on our brains. And you're having that brain part of falling in love, but you're not actually getting the love experience of being with somebody. And, you know, I think that they're going to find out one day (laughs) that You know how with a fight or flight response, like if you don't ever run or, you know, you get this, all this adrenaline, it's, it's so that you can run so that you can run away from the tiger. But if there's no tiger and you don't run and you just sit there like stewing and all those um, stress hormones, it's really hard on your body. And so likewise, I think trauma also causes you to overactivate like your, your bonding and falling in love sequence, your hormones, your brain activity switches on, but there is no relationship. And so we end up loving a phantom. We end up with all this energy going into a phantom. And unfortunately, you know, I I say this again and again, that the energy of you, in your case, a woman falling in love is one of the universe's most powerful energies for creating things. All right. This is a huge creative force and you've been given a great big chalice of it in yourself. You know, you have the creative power to do great things. If you take that power and you've throw it on people who are on a destructive bender and then keep pretending in a fantasy that you're getting it back. I'm telling you what's ahead for you is not fun, not pretty, not creative, not fulfilling. And so I'm just coming in here with very tough love. Um, I answered a letter today from a young woman who's doing something slightly similar, but at at 21, it's one thing. At 49, I'm exhorting you. I'm like, time to get real, time to get real about the rest of your life. And it's so important to get these energy vampires out, get them out, open your eyes. You're not getting anything back here. You're getting, all you're getting back is hope and hope is addictive, but it doesn't turn into fulfillment. Hope, it ends up being quite depressing. And then you have to do more and more in the pursuit of hope to get it. Hope is our dope. Um, So, okay. So here's another thing, why I'm getting so tough love on you. You said, uh, it was about a year ago when you first met with him about becoming colleagues and you were still with the the ex-boyfriend and, and you had that, you were still with him and you brought him along with you when you saw him again for the first time after this makeout session. So I'm calling you out on this. It is okay. 
First of all, I'll just tell you everything that you're talking about. I've done things at least as inconsiderate and unkind to other people. But bringing along the guy you're dating to the guy you had a fling with is really, really cold-hearted and inconsiderate to the guy that you were dating and dishonest. All right. I'm calling you out on it because I know you want help with this. And time is short when you're 49, like it's time, it's time for you to get real. And what is so important, you were raised by somebody who couldn't care about other people. So I'm here just going like Vivian, it's time to care about other people. You cannot possibly build a loving relationship in the context of you treating other people like things like props bringing to a meeting with the guy you're crazy about and making out with. Okay. I'm not sure if you see that. So you broke up with the guy and maybe he wasn't right for you, but that's not a crime. He didn't deserve to be treated like that. He didn't deserve to witness that energy or to be made to feel how I would imagine he felt being in the room with that, you know, all that like heady, addictive, oh my God, you know, feeling that you were having with this other guy who I will suspect didn't care either about the fact of this boyfriend. The big project rolled around, you had broken up, so you showed up in his hometown where the project was taking place single. And you say that, and I, I'm reading into it, you know, that you had high hopes that you would convert him out of his self-destructive drunk sleeping around thing to being who you hoped he was, which is very unlikely to work out. Among other reasons, because when people will put up with that, it, sh it casts shade on their attractiveness. It, it, it's like a, a, attachment wounds cue potential partners that we are not relationship material. I know, I'm giving you so much tough love today here. But I just feel, I just feel moved to do it, Vivian, out of, you know, I just have been there. I know how to get out of it. I'm going to tell you what to do. You have to wake up to the, the self, the way you're tricking yourself, the way you're tricking other people and get back in touch with what a relationship is, which is caring about another person. It's caring about them and loving them and supporting them and hoping they'll become their best self. And it's mutual. A good relationship is where two people really want that for each other. I'm also somebody who finds that that creative collaboration with people is one of the closest connections you can have. I love my work. And when people work with me, it's like, it's the closest kind of friendship I have. Most of my friends, we do work on projects together at least, or they work in this company um, because we, uh, we're, we're on a common mission together. And that really is real. And that's something. And I appreciate that you had this, but this part where you're trying to get in all good with his grandma, this is where I feel really sad for you because I hear that you need that. You need a family. You need a family. You need the man with a family who thinks you're wonderful and makes jam for you and is delighted that you cook and adores you and thinks you're great. And, and you need the man who you have jokes on and you create something together. That is the most natural thing in the world. You need it, but you're forming it. Do you remember that scientific experiment? I don't know. They taught about this when I was in college about they took a little baby monkey away from its mom at birth and they gave it a wire mom and the wire mom had a little bottle in it so it could get milk and it would, it had a little patch of like fake fur on it and some wire in the shape of a mother monkey. And the little baby would hold onto the wire and drink out of the bottle, but eventually it died. And I read about this when I was probably, I don't know, in high school or something. Oh, and I just cried and cried and cried. It hit a bad nerve in me. It's really sad. And I just think you're kind of holding onto the wire monkey of a, of a partner with this relationship. And it's very sad and it's not going, it's not feeding you. It's feeding you hope and maybe you're making some money, but 
as I mentioned before, the thing about people who are totally unstable emotionally is they're not even good business partners. So potentially you're throwing away the stability of your career for the fantasy of being in this great, you know, power couple dynamic that you can picture. I get it. I think that, you know, what a lovely thing. Perhaps you will have that with somebody. You know, some famous actors, they don't like being with actors. They like being with normal people because the headiness, the headiness is not really great for people with addictive tendencies or trauma. You need people who are grounded. You need people who um, participate in like setting the table, making dinner, doing the dishes, you know, figuring out, making sure the porch is swept, all that stuff. The domestic part of life that you can do together is very much part of what helps traumatize people just ground and feel connected to the world and start to open up their hearts and minds in a way that we were never able to do as kids. The groundedness and safety that you did not get as a kid from somebody who sees you and loves you. Now, somebody who sees you and loves you would never try to take from you your emotional energy in this vampiric way. I'm not trying to make him a bad guy. I just think he's a bad choice for you. That's what I'm saying. Pretty definitely here, right? I, I often am a little bit easier going, but I just think given what you've been through, it's so important for you to take care of your future like this. Okay. So please stop obsessing over him. I live for our interactions. Okay, so that's the, that's the addiction. The addiction makes it feel life and death that you need an interaction for him. And I know about that, like seven more hours and I'm gonna see him. I know what that's like. What am I gonna wear? That's limerence, all right? You live for the interactions. You love the project ideas, fantasize about them, but why can't you make it stop? And you just told me why, all right? Because you don't have a life outside of this that you're living for. And it's very rare that somebody gets rescued from a life, an empty life by somebody who completely makes their life great. That's a fantasy. It's usually like two people with a pretty good life come together and make it somewhat better life together. That would be that would be a very realistic model. So you need a pretty good life. And a pretty good life is one that's fun, where you have friends, you have things to do, you have things that are very meaningful to you, you're doing acts of service, you're actually like serving other people. It's very hard to feel happy if you're not contributing in that way. And you can't make it stop because you're continuing to have contact with him. That's why. If you're really ready to make this stop and heal your life, here's what you do. You stop taking new contracts, you complete the contracts you have, and with almost no fanfare, you just say, I'm not gonna be doing new contracts with you. And when he goes, well, let's get together and talk about something, say, sorry, I can't do that. You don't have to make a speech. You don't have to break up with him. You guys are not boyfriend and girlfriend. And you're also not partners in a company. Whatever you do, do not become partners in a company. So he's putting your resume on proposals that he puts out. Um, he can do that, uh, but you're not going to take any jobs. And, you know, you can be as clear as you can. I'm saying very little fanfare, very little drama for your own sake to just sort of ease on out of that whole thing. You have an extremely uncommitted little partnership there, which is good. You can get out. You need to stop having contact with him. Then you need to stop talking about him. If you need a place to get your feelings out, because it's, you know, it's just like, so much emotion, right? Just go check out my daily practice course. That's what it's for. It's about taking your distressed thoughts and feelings and getting them out on paper twice a day. And this is a little, this is a little technique well known. You, you don't let yourself talk about a, a bad thing. You let yourself write about it. And if you really want to do that, you get a buddy and you can read to them about it. But do not get into indulgent conversations with women friends about this guy or everything you loved about him or, you know, everything you hoped or what a jerk he is. 
There's nothing to be gained by analyzing this. It's an addiction. It'd be like going and talking about, well, let's talk about heroin. You know, here's everything I loved about it. Like you've done that before. You've already done that before. A therapist might be okay for that, but I will tell you that I spent like two years trying to deal with a case of limerence in a therapist's office where all she did was go, tell me more, tell me more. And she was a, a good therapist, you know, by, uh, you know, a professor, like had training, all that stuff. And it nearly killed me. I needed somebody to go, cut it out, cut it out. This is like bullshit. It's a fantasy. Just stop. And the minute somebody did that stuff started to get better for me. I just needed to be called on it. And yes, you're right. You do see reality. He's too young for you. You're too old for him. You're in a different place. Um, he's not in a good place emotionally himself. There's never going to be anything with him. And so, so why limerence? Uh, just, just because for you right now, you still have enough fantasy delusion going on that you can keep thinking that there's anything to be gained by spending time talking about him or thinking about him. Yes, you can stop thinking about somebody. And this is a trick I learned in my teen years, that if you want to stop thinking about something, you just discipline yourself to do it. I'm not going to think about that now or worry. You can do this with something you're worried about. I'm not going to worry right now. You set yourself a time when you can think about it. And nowadays, I always do the daily practice. I'm writing my fears and resentments. That's a 15-minute chunk, basically, usually, maybe a little less, sometimes quite a bit more. And that's where I can obsess on things and get it out on paper, ask for it to be removed, rest in meditation, and then get back to the here and now. Because here and now is where all your potential is, all your power. So come back to us. Get Come back from the land of the dead where, with relationships that don't exist and will never happen, all right? That's a ghost town. Come back. It's full of life over here. There's plenty of future ahead for you if you can begin to show up for it. And yeah, there will be a feeling of withdrawal at first. And that's why you need tools, which is what we have here with the membership and courses and everything. And you need support. You need friends who are walking this path too. In your case, I would suggest maybe checking out Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous. I think that might be a place where you can meet other women walking the path. Whatever you do, stay away from the men there. It's not a place to pick up guys to date. Yeah, think about it, okay? <laughs> one is enough. One person with this problem is enough. And just go there and find women friends and look for the ones who have the most recovery and get yourself a sponsor. Find the woman who really has worked the steps and has changed her life and see if she'll help you do the same. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.